0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Help keep nonprofit food radio on the air. And get a limited release HRN t-shirt designed by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member or renew your existing membership at the $90 level, you'll receive a shirt created exclusively for members as our thank you gift. Don't wait because this limited edition t-shirt is only available until December 31st. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to support HRN at any level. There's more swag and benefits available for any tax-deductible donation. You can even get your company on the HRN Airwaves as a perk of our business membership program. Head to heritageradionetwork.org donate.
3: We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
1: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are so excited to end this year, 2022, with an all-new episode. First up, we have Laura O'Neill and Ben Van Leeuwen of Van Leeuwen Ice Cream, who we've known since they started, all the way back in 2008. They talk about their early days, their celebrated partnerships, and how they keep those flavors so fresh, so tasty, and so creative. And then we sit down with our good buddy, John Martin, who is the CEO of the recently revived Cream Magazine. We talk about his time at Munchies. We talk about how he approaches storytelling. We talk about how he balances business and creativity. It's a great episode. Thank you to all of our guests who sat down this year for the show. We're looking forward to bringing you new episodes in 2023. Thank you to Heritage Network, as always. And here we go. Please sit back and relax for Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network.
3: I'm broken, I'm hollow, oh. leave the world, I know, let me fall from the place I stand. Keep it simple, tell them nothing's new, after all it's true the sound of your voice be plain You are still young and you still have time These words destroyed my mind Into thinking that I'm okay I have nothing, it is only me It makes me sound so free But I'm lost in a place I know I Let your eyes sink to Let the world pass through Till you find what you can't let go And let the streets die Let the rest go home Let me be alone With the songs that I just can't sing I'm sorry This is so not me I know how it was seen Smile, And if it's over, I'm not aware I struggle and I stare And I talk to myself all night I am me no more I'm gone forever for sure For sure
1: Laura and Ben, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for sitting down chat with us. So excited to see your faces and to hear your voices.
4: It's good to be Can here. You, nice yeah. to see you, Darren. L-
1: Laura, actually, it should be more welcome back to Snacky Tunes because, and I think I have this right, you are the first musical guest to come back as a food guest because you wow. and your partner, Greg, performed back in 2015 with, uh, I think Cherry Bomb was the food guest under, and you guys performed. Lauren, Greg, how are things going with the music? How has everything been since we last sat down to chat?
4: Wow, well, I'm honored that I that I get that title. Um, everything's been good. I'm I'm living in L. A. now, and um, <clears throat> unfortunately, have not played a show since we moved to L. A. But mm. life changes, pandemic, babies, running an yeah. ice cream biz, but uh, yeah, still a. Uh, Still love music, but yeah, not not doing so much with it now.
1: I mean, the music changes. I think this was the first year in like three or four years that my Spotify wrapped actually reflected my musical tastes and not like Pink Fong or Dan Brown or, or mm-hmm. Disney princess music.
4: Oh, wow. Yeah, mine was, uh, my second one was Encanto, and I'd like to say that's because of my daughter, Rada, but actually, like, I really dig that soundtrack. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm, good. like, kind of forcing it on her if she doesn't care that much.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, you sure you don't want to hear the outtakes from Frozen 2 yeah.
4: soundtrack? <laughs> it's um, so good. Lynn is so good.
1: <laughs> ben, welcome to Snacky Tunes. So good to have you on the show. You know, I used to see you when we were all running around um, at parties and in New York and in the mid-aughts. And, you know, one of the things I've really loved about your brand is your willingness to take risks and the creativity. Um, and something that I found sometimes that is rare in artisanal brands, especially the ones started when you did, is your willingness not to take yourself too seriously. You know, the product is really good. But you still have a lot of fun with it. Have you seen these elements been a secret to your success? Is there something else that keeps the, the ice cream on the shelves?
5: Well, I mean, the, the not taking ourselves selves too seriously is it's it's cool that you perceive that because it's I think that's just a part of who we are. Like, mm-hmm. we love food, we're, but we're not serious about food because it's just mm-hmm. food. I I am I want every single meal I have every day to be as yummy as it possibly can, but at the end of the day, like. I'm not curing cancer, you know, I'm not Mm -hmm. a rocket scientist. So like, if it's not fun and you can't approach it with like a lightheartedness, then you're in the completely wrong business. Um, So, so I think probably taking that kind of lighthearted approach, um, but still a diligent approach to like problem solving, which, you know, overcoming challenges, I, I really think that's what, as long as you have like an idea that's pretty good, I think that's what makes or breaks a business. Um, you know, it's not brilliance or genius. It's just saying like this, am I allowed to swear? Mm-hmm. It's just saying like, oh, this shit, shit went wrong. How do we fix it? You know, and yeah, yeah. I think your success is determined by how successful you are at fixing it because shit's always going to go wrong no matter how mm-hmm. big you are or how small you are. Um the problems change as you grow, so I think like just taking a step back and being like, "It's all good," you know. We're just making ice cream. This is supposed to be fun. We're trying to bring, you know, little bits of joy to people's days. Um, and as I'm saying this, I am not nearly. I don't approach this always with a zen, of an approach <laughs> <laughs> right now, but, but, but I do think, yeah, g- generally that's that is a better approach, and we I think we utilize that a lot.
1: Yeah, you you aim for that Zen approach, and then uh, you hope yeah. when you when you watch the tape back, you're like, "All right, we got to like sixty three percent Zen on that yeah. one." Like, all right, it's fine. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember I remember when the truck started coming around in like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, being like DJing dance parties in Gowanus and you guys were there. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, the first Mister Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Mister Sunday yeah. parties. Um, and it's so easy now to look at like artisanal ice cream, especially now, um, as being established in a thing and there's so many brands and they come and they go. And, but back then it, it was pretty novel because, you know, it was like Mr. Softy was when you wanted an ice cream truck, which Ben, I, I know you spent some, some time, um, under the pumps there, but what yeah. was it like early days? What do you remember from getting started? what were people's reactions when they were like, you want to do what with ice cream? Um, What do you remember from that era?
4: Yeah, there was, um, so I guess like the kind of the short version of how we got started was um, Ben had this idea. He was standing in front of an ice cream and Mr. Softy ice cream truck. And he was like, everybody loves ice cream. No trucks sell good ice cream. He called Hmm. me and Pete and he was like, let's start an ice cream truck. And he had, um, the background in the, the good humor trucks that they'd run around Connecticut. Um, but yeah, so from there we were like, we started making ice cream at home. We figured out some way to make it. And we wrote a business plan and we brought that, I think it was like probably like 50 pages, right, Ben, the business plan. <laughs> we brought that, that business plan to all the quote unquote rich people we knew sure, sure. that they would be like, you know, handing over checks And they weren't like, they were like, it was interesting. It was like the people who had money seemed really conservative. Like they didn't. And then our friends who didn't have money or had some money had, you know, enough to write us a check for like $2,000 or $5,000, which was probably their life savings. They were like 20 year olds. Um, They were like, Oh my God, we, we see it. We believe in it. Let's do Mm. it, we want in. And it was really, it was really smart of them to do it. So I think, um, (laughs)
1: Wait, was like, this 2008? Was this pre or post uh, the
4: crash? It was like during. during. I feel like the crash because we launched in June of 2008. So like the, I remember like being like, "What's Bear Stern? Like I better like Google that, or was it Google that? I don't know. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, there was <laughs> um, Google then. Yeah, and just being like, "What's happening?" And i I'd, I'd moved there a year before, and we'd had our kind of heads down, like working on this business plan, and you know. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, look. I remember that rentals. era and being like, when you have little to no income or resources anyway, you're like, I, okay, financial institution mm-hmm. collapsed. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't affect right. me much. Right. Yeah.
4: But yeah, to answer your question, I think people were like, like ice cream. Wow, like, or they kind of also thought like, this blend there is ice cream out there. Like, does it need to be reinvented? And, um, right. You know, it did. But um, yeah, I don't know, Ben. Do you want to add anything more to those kind of early? anecdotes about um, how people how people thought about us starting the company.
1: Do you remember when you pulled the truck up for the first time?
5: Yeah. I mean the, the first good spot we found, which took us like half a day was on yeah. the corner of green and Prince in Soho. Mm. And, and again, the, 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 this was a year in the making, so it wasn't an immediate success in the, yeah. in the sense that it took us a long time to get to that day, but it, it was, it felt great because we pulled up the truck we had had no press, no media coverage. And literally, like, before we even opened the window, there were 10 people in line. Um, mm-hmm. Because they were they thought the truck looked really nice and they mm-hmm. were intrigued by the botanical drawings. Um, and we, I mean, man, I, I, th- I don't know if I remember how it felt or if I've recreated the memory, but I think I felt really happy in that
1: moment, you know? Felt wow, really- working as an entrepreneur in the food business, and feeling happy. Of course you remember that because right, it is the right. fleeting moment. <laughs> um, yeah.
5: I always, I always feel happy when I'm serving the ice cream though. Like, if of course, I, of no, course. No, no matter how stressful the business is, if I go to the stores and scoop, like always fun. You're on your feet, you're interacting with people. It's like really hard not to be in a good mood if you're doing that too.
4: Yeah. And those early days, like it was just us. So we would like, I feel like we'd sometimes get the trucks out late because- we liked sleeping but then like once we were out we would like stay out because like we yeah. weren't like oh we've I, it's been four hours and I haven't had a break or it's been eight hours and like right. that's legally right. as much as I'm allowed to work we were just like as long as people are buying the ice cream let's stay out and I remember like later being on like Bedford and like I'd have the mm-hmm. truck like cleaned up lights off I'm in the driver's seat like headlights aren't ready to pull away and someone would like tap on the window and I'd be like all right like another I can sell another scoop I love
5: but that. But, Laura, we had to get to Soho by like 10 a.m. to that's get the spot. That's true, start. yeah. So we did have to like start kind of early. I mean, not that early, but we, we parked a. the yeah. Yeah, yeah. We drove from Maspeth to Soho every day on the truck. Wow. Wow.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, traffic probably wasn't as bad as it is now, but that's it still... wasn't
5: as bad. Yeah, there was no traffic then, now that I think about it. New York was a tiny city for 15 years. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I know. The Um, first
4: vehicle I drove in the States was the ice cream truck because I'm used to driving on the other side of the road in Australia. And, like, I was a seasoned driver, but I remember, Mm -hmm. like, Ben was like, we've got to get the truck from, like, Connecticut to New York and, like, you got to drive one of them. Let's go. (laughs) Baptism by fire. Okay.
1: okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Going back to the the investment part of it because – once you established success or once you had brands and obviously people really liked it, I'm sure there was opportunity to bring in other capital or investors or things like that. But you held off on that for what the first decade of the business. Yeah. What, what made you want to keep yourself independent for so long? And on the other side of that coin, why did you eventually, or what made you want to eventually uh, want to take on outside money?
5: Mm Mm-hmm. So I'll go first, Laura. Um, what, what made us wait was the concept was, it, it's always evolving. But when mm-hmm. we started Van Leeuwen, we had no experience running a food business. Um, we had no experience running retail or building stores um, or commercializing food products on a larger scale. So we just felt like it was too early to sort of put the pedal to the metal on growth um, f- really, for the first decade, because we were still learning so much. You know, we didn't have, you know, decades-long careers in the CPG business or running restaurants before Van Leeuwen. Like I was 23 years old, so it just felt like it wouldn't have been smart. You know, after we had a little bit of success with a few trucks and a store in Greenpoint in the East Village, and you know, some pints in Whole Foods, to say, okay, let's let, let's blow this up. You know, maybe it would have worked, but we wanted to continue to like hone the idea. And then it was after 10 years that we said, okay, you know, we we're in a place where even if we had all the money in the world, we're not ready to open a hundred stores, but we think we could start Mm. opening like, you know, five or six stores a year. We don't have the capital for that. And then we also wanted to we wanted to bring in people who had a lot more experience than us. And we didn't have the capital to do that. And also like, it was really stressful. Like we never, we, we managed for the first decade, you know, somehow like we grew a little bit. We didn't run out of money, but we were not rolling in dough and it was always super tight in the winter time. So a big part of it too, is just like trying to uh, um, prevent that sort of financial stress because financial stress is so shitty feeling. It is one of, the, for me, it's like one of the worst feelings ever. Uh, so I was like, you know I am with you. Yeah, yeah it was like a, a little bit of dilution. I'm totally fine with that if I'm going to sleep better at night. And I think it, you know, it allowed us to build a really great team and grow faster.
1: Mm, yeah. After yeah. you've maybe established yourself, and you're like, you can't push me around with your money because I've been doing it for ten years, and I know, right. I know what works, what doesn't work, <laughs> at least at this level.
5: Yeah but, yeah, but partially that too. And I think like that confidence always grows. Probably in 10 years from now, we'll be like, oh, we did not know what we were doing 10 years ago. <laughs> but, but certainly if we had done it two years in, I think whoever brought the money, we'd be like, you're an expert way more than we are. You know, because you have that.
2: Yeah.
5: It's a little bit of, I guess, imposter syndrome, insecurity when you're still a small business.
1: Sure, of yeah. course um all right well listen let's take a quick musical break and we come back mm. i want to talk about um more of the growth more of these crazy partnerships that you guys have done uh working with other brands and because it's the holidays some of the flavors you put out and i'll give you time I'll, i won't drop it right on you you can start thinking about what your favorite holiday song is because that that question is going to come um you know what we're going to play we're going to play a tune from laura and greg all the way back from 2015 from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
6: We took a breath from the same world We saw the same summer skies We took a breath from the same world and got lost in the wonderful times I stood in front of my old home I searched my mind for tired from the ground grow I let it all go I don't have much but I have enough so don't feel so crushed you still have
1: Laura, that brings me back to the shipping container where we, were we ever so young, Were we ever so, so young and sounded so good.
4: Those were the days.
1: <laughs> um, so, you know, we sort of ended last act with talking about bringing in investors and capital. And a lot of times when you see that, especially with these smaller brands, um, the founders walk away, like we got more money, you know, that's what they're working for is a buyout. But you decided to stay um what was that adjustment period like and what have the last few years of growth been like now that you have outside capital but also influence voices and also guidance
4: yeah, so we we've only taken minority investments, so there's mm. never there wasn't an opportunity to be like <laughs> cashing out and be done. Nor, nor was that what we were looking for, sure. um, and nor was that what the investors who were interested in Van Lewin looking for. Um, I think they were, you know, they see that like me and Ben and Pete and our team, like we are the brand, um, and we're still, you know, there's so much growth ahead of us, so. Um, it's it's not the time for somebody to kind of come in and and just do it their way um but yeah things have changed um we you know we only want to work with people we like so we we take our time with um with who we let into the sandbox um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then I guess the things that have changed is and this is this sort of professionalization has happened not only like just through like investors coming in but through like the team that we've built um so you know we kind of I don't know we would we were really informal about how we did meetings or how we like even mm. our r and d process and you know now with like sort of reviews as our team gets bigger and um you know we we have the opportunity to kind of professionalize in a way that actually we're really excited about um but of course board meetings um and mm. you know we're we're not only accountable to ourselves and our team now, but we are accountable you know somewhat to um to our investors as well so Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's all good stuff. Like you can't kind of like, you can't go on like the way that you did in the early days. And yeah, I sometimes think about those early days and I'm like, I'm like, how did we do it? And I can't even totally remember how we did it. And, but like, (laughs) you know, our our team now like flexes up to like 700 people in the height of summer with all of our stores. So we have to have our ducks in line. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those are like hourly team members at you know, the various stores around the country, but, um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we, you know, we, it's, it's like our goal to work with people that like, that, you know, like us and love the brand and also can like bring something to the table, but not tell us how to do it. Cause like they've invested in how we do it and what we are.
1: Yeah. I mean, you also see a lot of brands and it's interesting to hear a brand of your size and your reputation only take on, um, minority investors because a lot of times you see these big companies see a great brand that's smaller that's maybe has higher profile ingredients or better quality ingredients things like that and it's like we'll buy you and we'll just we'll turn you out or or flip it like that mm. um but not only have you guys not been taken over or bought out by those guys but you've actually partnered with some of them to create flavors obviously like the Kraft Mac and cheese and the Grape Poupon, um, which is interesting because they have their own, like, you know, I'm sure if you look at their stable of brands, they could have done that sort of collaboration or that sort of promo with an in-house artisanal brand or something that the, the world thinks is artisanal. So why do you think these large, huge food brands have come to you to work with you on this? And then how do you work with such a behemoth and say like, I get what you're trying to do, but here's how it's gonna still be a Van Leeuwen type of of creation.
4: Dan, you wanna take this on?
5: Sure. So I I think the way they think about it, which from a marketing perspective and how it's really valuable marketing wise for the brand, is like really big and kind of small and artisanal is a great synergy. Um mm. like the 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 sort of smaller brand gives the bigger brand more street cred and even more culinary legitimacy. And then the bigger Mm -hmm. brand has a media and PR budget that helps a smaller brand like this build more awareness because our media budget is $0. You know, we don't wait. I I thought
1: there was a check coming for this. uh, (laughs) Um, we can, that. we can sell them
5: out yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> but you know we're um in this isn't even me being pr but i say this honestly like of course our our, our marketing is you know the eight hundred thousand dollars we spend every eight months bringing a container of pistachios from bronte sicily yeah of because course. we think of using that ingredient is gonna you know make for such a distinct memorable experience so when we see craft we're like oh this is awesome we could never afford to like create a marketing campaign that's going to get so much buzz. And mm-hmm. what was cool about craft? because the first thing we thought was, okay, we can do this, but we're going to have to make our own mac and cheese powder because we can't use, you know, funny artificial ingredients. And then we right. looked at craft, and this isn't even me plugging Kraft. But I was like, oh, turmeric is the coloring. Like it was actually all natural. So that one like worked for us in hmm. formulation wise. It was super easy because you use a lot of milk solids and ice cream Kraft mac and cheese powder is just cultured milk solids, so you get yep. that little bit of tang, a little more salt, some tricalcium phosphate, which is like this wonderful drying agent, which isn't mm. bad for you, but I wouldn't put on our the label of yeah. all of our ice cream. But it was pretty yeah. awesome for the texture. It's what they use in like a lot of soft serves. Um, so yeah, we we thought that was sort of a, a good partnership. Um, in a great way to build the brand. But most of all, like, cause you got to think about your guest, our guest in the stores or, um, you know, customer in the grocery store, like it delighted people, you know, in yeah. sort of like an unexpected way, but also it was, it was delicious. Like it was a little different tasting, not too different tasting, but it surprised people. It sort of, I think made them laugh. It shocked them, but it was also a good eating experience. So it kind of, did everything we wanted to do plus, you know, built some awareness for Van
1: Leeuwen. I mean, does anyone, what haters are going to hate, people are going to come in and and find a way to even dump on something as fun and as esoteric as this. Um, Was there blowback? Is there blowback when you work with like a large brand like that, that has their fingers and a lot of, a lot of different, parts of the world that maybe doesn't add up as well or is it just you go like guys we're just having fun like it's again going back to what you said at the top it's just ice cream we're, t- we're yeah, just trying I... to do something that's that's gonna riff
4: yeah yeah definitely oh. no, yeah, ahead,
5: I think I, yeah people were pretty psyched good yeah.
4: I mean they were like people were like the internet was divided like people were like you know delighted disgusted like yeah. I had to that, try it.
1: <laughs> isn't that what the whole thing is? There was that Fast Company article that is about um, you know, these like uh t- promo flavor tastes that really do move the needle of the conversation cuz in so m- many ways you're like I can understand the concept of combining ice cream and or flavor and with something that right. just always be there together.
4: Yeah. Yeah, something unexpected, something delicious. But everything we always do will be good. Like, I think there's Mm. some other brands that will, like, make stuff that maybe we wouldn't actually think really tastes good. But it's uh, – yeah. And when we came to do, like, the Grey Poupon one, like, honestly, like a pint that tastes like straight Grey Poupon – in our opinion, that's not going to be good. Like as an mm. ice cream, that's not going to be good. So we worked it into the swirl. Um, and it's like, you know, it's like a touch of the grape poupon, but it's not like as mac and cheesy as the mac and cheese flavor was, mm-hmm. or as great poupony as the mac and cheese was.
1: Yeah. Well, you just, you just did the flavor swirl with the glass onion, Netflix, uh, yeah. release, which was so cool to see. And I'd love to hear your thought process when you're working with a brand whose IP isn't flavor based. Because with the mac and cheese and the grape poupon, you you know that you are working off a base, pretty distinct flavor. But when someone like a Netflix something you say, like we want to do something with glass onion, how did you come up with that? How do you take the creative parts of of maybe a show or movie and turn that into a a a pint of ice cream?
5: Mm -hmm. So that one was fun. Um, So we kind of looked at the the story. Um, So glass onion, there is a swirl of onion jam with bourbon. Bourbon is the private investigator's drink of choice. So that was kind of obvious. But then for the glass part, we mm-hmm. did um honeycomb. So the honeycomb kind of shatters like glass, but we didn't just do any honeycomb. We did pineapple flavored honeycomb because if you've seen the movie, pineapple is like a big part of the storyline. When oh, it, I love it. I, I, I won't spoil it, but something <laughs> happens with pineapple. <laughs>
4: So that's yeah, great. But they, <coughs> they wanted it to be like this mystery and kind of have these like layers of flavor. So, I mean, that was like, kind of like, yeah, I, I, I think that was like just a sort of perfect storm of a flavor and like, there was actually so much to work with. Um, but it tastes I, good. I will
5: say though that it, it is the strangest tasting flavors we've ever made in yes. the, the grapefruit. Right?
1: It's, it's coming yeah. out people. It's going to be in stores. Uh...
4: Yep. It's in all our stores. Yeah. Stores, already, yeah.
1: website
5: and then you can find it in um a few little grocery stores in new york city as well yeah and we're also going to do
4: some uh, truck activations later in the month um where people can come out and try it in la there's like a glass onion activation happening um, i don't know if i'm supposed to be talking about this yet but anyway um and uh we'll be at union square as well amazing um, so keep an eye out
1: i mean look i i i it got to the 40s here in L.A., so I was like, oh, it's quite frigid. But you still do make a good run as a brand for ice cream during the holiday season, which is a bit of a zag. You know, obviously you said you scale to like 700 people during peak summer. But I know you just came out with a line of winter flavors and, um, you know, you're really pushing people to consider ice cream during the winter, uh, especially in parts of the world. Or even America, that's cold. Why? Why? Why make such a big part of the year when everyone's not thinking about ice cream?
5: Well, I mean, launching new flavors is—I mean—it's a good way to like keep people engaged and excited about mm. coming to the ice cream shop. So, in um, winter is the hardest time to get people yeah. to come in, of course. So, for these ones, I can sort of run through. And we did—we do peppermint stick every year, and it's like such a simple flavor, but it yeah. is. Right now, I would say it's my favorite flavor we've ever made. So like the peppermint candy, it's actually super hard to source because we won't use any artificial coloring. And it's really hard to find like candy cane without artificial red. Is it red number 10 or something? Um, So ours is like organic candy made with beet juice. And it's kind of like leavened with, I think, sodium bicarbonate or something. So when you mix it into the ice cream, it gives the ice cream this like marshmallowy texture. It is so good. And then we do a brown butter um chai. So we use chai tea from Rishi. They're an amazing tea trader who we also mm-hmm. use our Earl Grey from. And then we brown butter in our bakery, which is in our factory in Brooklyn, and we make a custard with that. And then we swirl through that caramel. So really good. Then um Coquito, which is like Puerto Rican eggnog. So it's like eggnog, same Mm. spices, but then you have a coconut base. And through that Dulce de Leche swirl, which is one of our first Dulce de Leche swirls we've ever done. And I'm like, why isn't this in every flavor? Dulce de Leche (laughs) is one of the greatest things ever.
1: How um, have we been sleeping on this flavor? Yeah.
5: (laughs) And then this is maybe the best flavor we've made all year. Lemon poppy seed muffin. Sounds so basic, lemon poppy seed muffin. It is a sour it's – a, it's a cream cheese base, Laura? A cream cheese base, lemon mm-hmm. muffin pieces, and then a lemon and poppy seed curd swirl. It is really okay. tasty. Really and then for our, for our vegan friends,
7: mm-hmm. we did
5: a gingerbread vegan ice cream. Very Oh, yummy. So I, I love it. A, yeah, coconut, oat, cashew base – um, with some cocoa yeah. butter in there to give it more lusciousness.
4: So those four are gonna be around all winter, but the peppermint stick is just December. So people are yeah. gonna get come in and get it. We're doing like get milkshakes, Sundays. So good.
5: But but so Darren, you, you you were asking about like the the just I guess in fl, on flavor development in general? Like we've yeah, it's taken us such a long time to kind of hone how to develop things that we know people are gonna want to mm. buy and eat. Because it's not about like the, I always use this example, but like the wild Himalayan licorice flavor that I made 13 years ago that, you know, I think I made six tubs of and we sold half a tub in six months. Um, Like it's about making (laughs) stuff that people just want to buy.
1: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to move pints and they got to sell no matter how fun they are. Um, But I imagine much like, you know, some breweries, you probably have some like special pints at certain locations where if you know when to go and where to go, you can be like, Oh, they definitely tried something here. Yeah. So um, as you look to the future, as, as you know, you continue to expand stores and know you're going to different cities and stay committed to artisanal ingredients what does growth look like for you? Because a lot of the times the first step is when you really grow is you start saying like, we will use artificial colored candy canes. You know, we still, will start making those little cuts here and there. And then, you know, that's when things start to change. How do you grow, stay true to the mission? And then is there ever a point where you just go, we're going to just sort of change what the mission is and become a different company?
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Well, I think one thing we have going for us is ice cream scales really well. Um, meaning if you took our products that we made on a really small, on a tiny scale like 10 years mm-hmm. ago and put them in a haagen factory, mm-hmm. with, you know, with, with the exact same formulation, same ingredients, that process you know, that you'd get in a quarter billion dollar factory is actually going to make for a better product. So that's one of the reasons we, like, loved ice cream because we're like, oh, this is cool. You can, like, unlike beer, wine, you know, most bread and cheese, which, like, you are going to get a better product if it's small. No question. There's no way to mass produce really good sourdough bread or, you know, cloth-bound cheddar cheese or, like, you know, those awesome, like, wild fermented beers. Um, Lager you can do, right? That's good when it's mass produced. But, like, so so that part we have going for us. So then with with the ingredients, you're like, okay, how do we – how do we scale and maintain the quality? Mm. No, theoretically, you should be able to get better, right? Because you're like, if we're bigger, we're buying more. So we'll be able to buy more chocolate that's the same quality for less or buy even higher quality chocolate for less. Now, now that's theoretically. I think in practice, it, it is harder to do. Um, so like one of the things we changed over the last five years is – we went from using Michel Quizel chocolate, which we were, I love Michel Quizelle chocolate. It was like, I mean, then it was like $13 a pound. Now it's probably like 17. Um, mm. to, you know, now we're using a combination of Theo chocolate and Republic del cacao chocolate, which is a subsidiary of Valrona. These are still like extraordinarily good chocolates, but um But, but that was less about saying in order to get big, we can't afford this chocolate. And I think it was more about being like, Oh, we have a good enough bookkeeping system that we see that we spent, you know, 15% (laughs) of all of our revenue on chocolate last year. (laughs) Um, right and, 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 And you can absolutely do that in a, you know, one to three Michelin star restaurant where dessert is 17 to $38. But when you're selling a pint to Whole Foods for, you know, Two or three bucks, or a yeah. scoop in a store for six bucks, it's, it's really hard. Um, yeah.
4: I think also, though, we're always thinking about like, what are efficiencies and savings we can find that don't affect the guest experience or don't affect the product? Um, you know, because the product, that's like the cornerstone of what we do. Um, and we've always been, we came into this being like, best quality so like if we start to chip away at that then we're not really van living anymore um so but yeah i mean this is like boring stuff but like the way we build stores like you know do we need to have like tile at 10 feet or can we have it at like seven feet and you know things mm-hmm. like that um mm-hmm. that like that still or what are things that we can change about the product that maybe actually even make it better Um, Mm. so just like, we're not, um, we used to talk a lot about Kaizen, like the sort of philosophy of constant improvement. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes that will like, that doesn't always mean like better is not always more expensive. Um, it's just like, we're, it's like, we're not resting on our laurels. We look at the way we do things all the time. And if there's like a better way to do it and, um, and everything is still really good, then great.
1: Amazing. Well, listen, uh, I want to make sure we have time for you guys to tell people where to go, but holiday season, holiday time of year, favorite holiday song. No wrong answer.
4: Ben, what's yours? Dreadle, dreadle? Wait, <laughs> Wait. Wait um,
5: wh- wh- what is the Peanut song called? Like, is it just like- Charlie Brown. Is-
1: yeah, Peanuts theme? Yeah, by yeah, Vince Guaraldi. Yeah. yeah, by far. Yeah, yeah, that's
4: such a good one. Um, mine is actually a song by Mike Kroll. It came out mm. in 2019, and it's from a holiday album that Merge Records put out, and it's called Won't Be Alone Tonight. And it's so yeah. good.
1: Yeah, Merge has done some really good holiday stuff. Um, yeah, I feel really like if a,
4: if a good Christmas song or holiday song can come out in, like, 2019, that's pretty impressive, you know?
1: Yeah, I've
4: had a lot of
1: yeah. holiday seasons. A lot really of holiday cool seasons. answer. Yeah. Thanks, um I think uh, getting not doing covers and just writing like holiday inspired um, songs. Uh, I would say my my favorite is probably um, "White Christmas." Cast the tone for the painfully alone is a really good. Like, oh it's yeah, a good,
6: it's
0: a real, mm-hmm. it's a
1: really good one. Oh, I think I got the name that. right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, listen, Laura, Ben, um, and thank you so much for seeing yeah. that talk. If people want to see where to get flavors, check out the new uh, seasonal flavors, or just follow along. Where can they
4: go? They can uh, follow us on Instagram at Van and Ice Cream. Uh, the website's also Um If you can sort of spell it, you can find us. And, uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, then, visit, then, visit, it, visit us in the stores. Come have a Sunday. Yeah.
5: But stores in New York City, Philadelphia, Dallas, Houston, Denver, Boulder, Greenwich, Connecticut, and Philadelphia
1: and Los Angeles. Love it. Hometown and new hometown. Great to see them both there. Uh, Wilson, thank you so much. We have a musical guest coming up here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. But before that, another song from the archives.
2: help keep nonprofit food radio on the air, and get a limited-release HRN t-shirt designed by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member or renew your existing membership at the $90 level, you'll receive a shirt created exclusively for members as our thank you gift. Don't wait, because this limited-edition t-shirt is only available until December 31st. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to support HRN at any level. There's more swag and benefits available for any tax-deductible donation. You can even get your company on the HRN Airwaves as a perk of our business membership program. Head to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate.
1: John, so good to hear your voice, to sit down with you. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for making the time, especially during the holiday season. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Darren. You know, we, I mean, we've known each other for a, a long time. Uh, we met while you were at Vice, I think after you had started Munchies. And uh, per the news this week, we got a pour, pour maybe a artisanal pour over coffee out for the the end of Munchies.
8: Yeah, it's an end of an era. I'm glad that those videos will hopefully always be online because there's a lot of good stuff in there and there was great stuff on the website too with the articles, but, um, yeah, it's sad to see it go. And from what I read, uh, it sounds like they're, they're done, but, um, everyone who worked there was super talented and, uh, I think, uh, they'll be on to great, bigger and better things.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, what, a uh- what I really liked about munchies and and your involvement in it and you as um, a writer and a journalist and an, an editor in chief is taking a pretty well-known subject and then just finding a really completely different way to report on it and insert it into mainstream culture and things like that. Um, has that always been the case for your career in journalism? How'd you get your start? Why did you want to get involved with this type of work?
8: Well, when I started at Vice, it was in 2002, and mm-hmm. I think I had grand aspirations of writing and everything. But I got in on the, the sales side, and you know, I, I was an ad sales guy. It was a magazine at the time, and you know, it was a lot of fun. And you know, realizing that that was actually where you make money, as opposed to writing, uh, which you didn't make a ton of money doing. I got to do some sure. writing over the years and got to produce videos and go on shoots and, you know, and, and sort of play as a journalist. Um, But, you know, my role was really always more on the business side. I mean, that, you know, being able to, being able to write or produce certainly helps you uh, when you're working in the content world and you're trying to monetize it. You have to have a understanding of how that works. And, you know, part of that is, looking at what else is out there and saying how do we do this mm. differently and that was really what we did with munchies um we didn't just do regurgitated food videos it was Mm-mm. really trying to be something new it was trying to you know bridge t- the gap between you know different worlds and and show a you know show a new way of looking at food whether that was you know guy getting younger hosts or, you know, having, you know, something where it's food and music, which clearly you guys are on to as well. And, you know, doing doing it in a different way, because, you know, at the time that Munchie started, it was like, it was a video series in like the late aughts. And then we started the channel in 2014. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was it was novel then, because really food video was like the food network and that, you know, there wasn't really, you know, much else that was, that was beyond what they were doing. I, you know, I mean, you guys were early to the game when you had your show and that was certainly. Yep. Different. And, you know, we tried to do, we tried to do new stuff that people would really kind of sit up and take notice of. And you know, granted we put it online at first and before a lot of those formats migrated to tv but um yeah it was it was trying to approach food in a different way
1: you know looking at journalism or videos or media that either has cult status or looking back you could say it was ahead of its time it's you said the word yourself it's like oh you got to remember you know when this was and and what the era was going on um, in other media or what was happening to contextualize how ahead of the curve it might be. And you also talk about the business of it because sometimes those two things don't overlap where it's really cool and it's really great and it's groundbreaking, but people going like, "Eh, I don't know if we want to put serious money behind it. How do you balance or how have you balanced being on the edge of finding those stories, that type of reporting, but also making money and also making it sustainable.
8: You have to hustle. I mean, it's it's mm. <laughs> take the easy money where you can, which, you know, in the case of doing a YouTube channel, it's you take sure. the ad money that comes from YouTube. But then you have sort of a, a, a real wake up call when you realize that the video that you produced, uh, you're only going to get in five years. You're only going to get maybe if it does well, uh, half as much as it costs you to produce back in, in ad revenue, and that's really scary yeah. especially when you're trying to do, you're when you're trying to do high quality stuff, and you know you're competing ultimately with some kid that's uh, you know filming himself playing video games and it costs him nothing, mm-hmm. and you're sitting there going oh yeah, we're going to get this crew of five people and we're going to fly them to France and we're going to eat in all these restaurants and and we're going to go to a show. It's gonna be crazy. We're going to edit it into a 30-minute video. And it's a fundamental problem with the industry because the CPMs are not all that different from the low-quality stuff to the high-quality stuff. So you got to be a little crafty about how you make money. And I think with Munchies, the real strength of it was we made a brand right? And the brand, once you, that, you make a brand that can do anything you want, you can do events, you can do partnerships with other brands, uh, you can do products, um, you can do other types of content. You're not just, you, you know, purely beholden to the ad that you can place before or during the content. You know, we're going to talk to about this a little bit later when we get into
1: cream, but this concept of building a new type of brand that can be at the center of so many different tenants of IP is relatively novel in the sense that you could create it out of thin air and that people could, at least in the modern media sense of the word, build it and then sell against it. But for that to really work and for it to have longevity story and character still need to be at the center of it. How important has that been for you in finding both the right people to work with, to report on and narrative driven concepts that tie it all together?
8: I mean, story and character is critical. I mean, that is what Mm. you're doing, you know, whether that means a host and a place or a subject and what, what they're, what they're up to. Um, you have the, – the weird part about making content like that is the, the prevailing theory is that scale is your friend. And as long as you can get scale, you'll be good. Mm. You know, money will come. And you know, sometimes <laughs> that's true. You know? uh, sure. A lot of times if you're trying to build a brand, scale is your enemy. And mm-hmm. you dilute your brand by getting scale. Um, and that's a really challenging uh, and bitter pill to swallow sometimes because you just think if you can do more, you're going to be better because it's going to be more eyeballs. But what you realize is they're less engaged eyeballs. They're people that don't care as much. They're fly by night. It, and what you're doing doesn't pass the thumb test of, you know, is this really my brand or could this be done by any other brand? And that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's where the alchemy of brand building comes in, where if you can, and then, you know, sometimes you're, you're, you're limited by your budgets, but if you can be a little restrained on what you make and a little choosy, you're going to have a better brand experience than uh, those, whether it's websites or whether it's social media accounts that are just vomiting out, you know, tons of content every day in their brand means nothing. It has, you know, no sort of exclusive premium value to anyone. And, you know, right. you don't really have a brand at that point. So, you know, I, I've always thought that the long term value is in brands that can really um mean something to an audience. And, you know, clearly Munchies was that for you know solid ten years in in the food space.
1: I mean, look, you've always been a big food guy in my mind, and you and I have had the pleasure of of sharing a few meals together, and I follow along, and where you eat in the world, and things like that, and you know, music's also been uh, a big part of who you are, Um, you're in a band, and now you're working over at Cream, and what is the overlap for you for food and music? Why are they so important to you personally and professionally, and and what do you... what do you think they share, uh, as far as passions and artistic disciplines?
8: So well, I grew up in Maine, and like pretty pretty rural suburb, if you could even call it that in Maine. And you know there wasn't <laughs> really we didn't go out to to eat. You know you ate at home. Like going out to same, restaurants same. was a real treat. Like I, I'm not joking. Yeah. I can probably count it. You know on two hands, the number of times I did when I was a kid. And, um, yeah. you know, it, it was a treat and the same thing with music. Like there wasn't really a music scene per se it, when I was growing up. It was like you got it through the radio or whatever overpriced CD you would, you would buy from, from, sure. the, from the music shop. And so, you know, I remember I went to college in upstate New York, uh, and the town, Uh, It was a real like food town and there was, you know, I was definitely exposed to food there and exposed to music. Um, And it really, you know, those were things that I always loved, but they were always a little bit probably out of reach um, to actually be like participating. Um, And that just escalated for me when I moved to New York and, you know, working at Vice, Mm. you know, sales department. Yeah. We had expense accounts, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, <laughs> I remember those. I remember those days. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I got to go to a lot of crazy dinners, and it was really fun, and yeah. it, was, it was part of doing business. And then I just realized I really, I mean, who doesn't like going to a really, really great dinner? And then you're just exposed yeah. to it in New York. And you know, when you're when you're young, you probably don't really know how to cook, and so you spend too much of your money. And you never save any money. You spend too much of it uh, in restaurants Mm -hmm. and bars. And, you know, as you get older, you actually learn how to cook. and You don't do it as much. But, um, you know, it's a it was it was something that just escalated, I think, by where I was uh, living and where I was working. And, you know, living in New York in your 20s, if you're not going Mm -hmm. to shows, you know, I I don't really know what you're doing. And maybe you're in the gym all the time. Agreed you know, for me, you, I couldn't really get away from it. And it was kind of the fun part of, 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 you know, spending my twenties and my, and my thirties in New York.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean the time and we overlapped and we're at some of the uh, shows meals together, but what a time, what a time to, uh, to experience and see the overlap of those two and, and be a part of, of, of what, behind the scenes was and making it happen as well and then reporting on it
8: yeah for sure i feel like we lived the bubble or we at least experienced the bubble uh, um, we did I think we point. did
1: i think we touched we touched the sky a little bit if you will
8: yeah it was it, there was a bit of uh probably a bit of uh icarus in there um but it was, yeah, it was a really agreed. cool time. i mean you know i always thought the whole like you know, chefs are the new rock star thing. is was a little ridiculous and overwrought. Agreed, but, agreed, you know, it agreed. Was, it was, you know, the fundamental problem with that is like, you know, it, it encouraged sort of like bad boy behavior, I guess. But also mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, a chef, can ha- you know, has to make a plate of food that really one person eats, whereas there's no like mass distribution system for that plate no. of food. Whereas music, you know, you record it, you put it out there. And, you know, maybe, you know, munchies being that we sort of humanized chefs and were able to at least show that lifestyle. We played a big part in in promoting that like chefs are rock stars kind of mentality. But, you know, that, you know, that narrative, I think, is a little ridiculous. And it's, um, you know, fundamentally like you want to be in a restaurant with a small amount of people. And get a really good experience. And and those are the best, those are the best culinary experiences when you're you're like, this is something really, really special. And I think like that is um, you know, if, if, if we shine if, if the journalism that Munchies did shined a light on new experiences and and new people who deserved a spotlight uh in the food world, then I think mission accomplished. Agreed. Um all right, I want to take a musical break. And we come back, I want to talk
1: about Cream Magazine, um, you helping relaunch it, bring it into its new era, and how you took some of the same approaches to brand building that you started and refined at Munchies to Cream. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Mm Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with John Martin, CEO of Cream Magazine, which, if it sounds familiar to you and you're thinking, isn't it also new? It's because it is a reborn magazine from the late 60s through the 80s. And for anyone who's a fan of music, it's always just been this cult classic of writing some of the best journalism on music in the world. When did you... First, hear about Cream magazine
8: at what age, and what did you know about his reputation? So I was born in nineteen seventy nine. So I would have been ten years old by the time that Cream was on its last legs, and I definitely remember it, like seeing it in mm-hmm. yard sales or at newsstand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was it was a it was a thing, right? It was in the sort of uh, you know the 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 eighties. Uh, the 80s sort of toned memories that I have. I always remember Cream was associated with rock and roll, but I was just too young to kind of get it. Um, and, you know, it was always stocked with the porno mags. So I wasn't really allowed to, uh, <laughs> allowed to pick it up at the newsstand. And, um, you know, it was a, it, it was, it probably didn't get widespread uh, beyond the music world. Uh, notoriety until Almost Famous came out because Agreed. was the uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, played left the le- le- Lester Bangs character. Lester was an editor at Cream and probably the most iconic music journalist of all time. And he, mm-hmm. you know, he was a, a journalist in the late seventies and, and or mid to late seventies at Cream, and you know that really put Cream uh, on sort of the pop culture map for a new generation of which I you know I was a part of. Um, mm-hmm. and no, but no one, the brand never really went anywhere. No one really did anything with it. It was, it was a, it was a fossil because it was the intellectual property was kicked around, uh, to different people, mm. uh, you know, and there were aborted, uh, reboots of it and, you know, they just didn't have the right team to, to relaunch it. And, um, it's been a really fun project, uh, putting it all together and, and getting it going again.
1: But the brand and the name, and and you know, you can thank Almost Famous for giving it some revitalization. But even without that, it still is hollowed IP brand recognition, name, writing, things like that. Um why do you think it's had some relevance, depending on how much you want to give scale to it over the years throughout the last few decades?
8: it always was sort of the rock and roll fans, rock and roll magazine in the, in the seventies and eighties. And, you know, look, it was, it was like 300,000 circulation, uh, in huge, huge. Like, but that was, that was newsstand. That was, you know, when magazines were dominant and it was well before the internet, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, TV was, you know, not what it is, certainly not what it is now. and it you know it was you had newspapers, radio and uh, and and TV and magazines, and that was it. and um, it was it was the second biggest uh, rock magazine to Rolling Stone uh, in the states. and you know, that sort mm-hmm. of alluded to it with the tagline that's on every issue, America's only rock and roll magazine. That's a joke, clearly. <laughs> uh, but the, the whole the the point is, It's America's only rock and roll magazine that matters. We know that there's a bigger one. It's the elephant in the room, but they're not actually a rock and roll magazine. They're a pop culture magazine. And so that, you know, we wanted to, you know, we wanted to continue that. That's why we still have it on the cover. And, um, you know, because we know that there there are other people that do talk about rock and roll out there, Um, but we want cream to be uh, the first and last word on anything important, really being the only, the only rock and roll uh, publication uh, and brand that you need to love. So when this new rumblings of relaunching the
1: brand after a few failed attempts over the years finally hits your ears, what were those conversations like? How seriously did you consider them? And how excited were you to get your hands on an already established brand, something that you weren't going to have to build and create from the ground up.
8: So long story short, it was Fred, Fred Pissarro and I were talking about doing a rock and roll festival uh, in New York and Mm -hmm. there's no good rock festival for, for our type of, our type of music. Uh, Fred was doing a lot of events and you know, I said, look, I think mm-hmm. I can package a, a festival and, you know, bring some sponsors in and, and do something really fun. Then COVID hit. Uh, I was really sort of bored at vice. Um, you know, everything, everything comes to an end and uh, it was sort of a long drawn out. end for me before I uh, finally parted ways with vice and, you know, had had been thinking about sort of niche publishing and had seen some success with uh, some friends of mine who do a publication called Mountain Gazette, which is basically an outdoors magazine that was you know had Edward Abbey, Hunter S. Thompson writing for it in the '60s and '70s. He bought the rights and uh, relaunched it, and it's like a biannual and does really well with it. and And I said to Fred, "Hey, man, like we should do this with one of those dusty old rock mags, like." Let's see what's out there. And, you know, Cream was always the the best of those. You know, there was like, you know, Circus, mm-hmm. Kerrang, uh, Hit Parader. Uh, you know, Cream was the coolest, though. Um, Cream right. was also the only one not mentioned uh, by Axl Rose and Get in the Ring. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it, it was um, you know, I, I hit up J.J. Kramer, who I looked him up on LinkedIn and, and, and saw that he – uh, said he ran cream and I, I hit him up. Uh, i had seen the documentary that came out. Uh, and, you know, I said, Mm -hmm. what are you doing with cream? It doesn't seem like you're doing anything with the magazine. Why don't you give it to me? I'll do it. And he said, well, I can't give it to you, but maybe we, uh, have a conversation. And so Fred and I started talking with him and, um, you know, long story short, we went into, we went, uh into business together. We went and raised money um from some investors who are, you know, just love the music world and love rock and roll and remembered cream and wanted to bring it back. And um brought a staff in and, and started doing it and uh have some pretty big aspirations because you know everyone remembers it as cream magazine. And you know our social handles are cream mag and all that. Uh but it's really it's a brand and the magazine yeah. is a finite amount of content that comes out quarterly. It's 128 pages. So you have to be really choosy about what's in there. And, and, you know, to our point about scale and dil- diluting your brand, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. if you only publish a quarterly magazine, it has to be shit hot and it really has to be the best stuff you can possibly put out there. Unlike a website that needs 40 articles a day. So you end up diluting your brand with just garbage and so we want the magazine to be sort of like an IP incubator that we can then spin off what we do from the magazine into podcasts, into shows, into events, into merchandise, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I mean, speaking of hot shit journalism and not to disparage it in any way, but you know, your recent article on David Berman's last few days – had a huge ripple effect in the music industry and you know sort of writing and things like that and in many ways it was an article that I don't I don't know who else with even though it was you know you guys have only been relaunched this year I don't know who else who could have handled it or who would have even done it or touched it like this to make it such a beautiful and, and haunting tribute is that the type of of stories that you think that only cream can report on. And, and is this what you think, at least for the magazine, the
8: music journalism can still look like, you know, to anyone could have gotten that article, but no one else. did, Right. Does it have, Mm -hmm. you know, cream is very, uh, you know, as much as cream was known for, it's sort of jocular and, and, you know, quippy sense of humor and you know a little snarky mm-hmm. and it you know, doesn't take itself too seriously there also was very serious journalism in cream and you know you got to know when to mm-hmm. deploy that humor and everything so you know that Berman article doesn't have you know a lot of the hallmarks of you know cream being you know funny and immature because it's about david Berman mm-hmm. who took his own life and it's a super sad story mm-hmm. and you know we wanted it to be kind of a tribute someone else could have gotten that story, but they didn't. And, you know, this writer uh, came to Cream and said, look, I really think you guys are the place to tell that story. And the photos, uh, you know, had been held mm-hmm. on to for a few years. And the, the photographer said no to everyone that wanted them. And then when Cream came calling, we said, this is the place for him, let's go. And, you know, it was like, I think it's a really great thing that That article was printed first in a big, nice magazine that's going to last and not just be living on a URL that someone is going to experience on their phone and they're not going to read the whole thing. And, you know, they're going to put it down and go back to playing Wordle. You know, I think like it's an important enough story that it deserves to be in print and, you know, the, the, I'll tell you what I, I told uh, Fred and the editorial team. I said it's the best thing we've ever done, and congratulations to you guys. The other side of that coin is you've now raised the bar for yourselves, so everything else needs to be mm-hmm. this. Way. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, it, it, was, it certainly it certainly made an impact. I, I didn't know if I was expecting it to make as big of an impact, just because it's so melancholy. But um, I think it's just a testament to you know, the impact that Berman really had on people and then mm-hmm. bands that, you know, really connected with him. So, I mean, he's a great artist.
1: Yeah, it's a great artist. And, and being able to maybe have that tactile feeling and hold the magazine and read the story, I think definitely adds to it. Um, but you do touch on another element of creating a brand is the trust that comes with it. Um, and not to be gauche about it because you definitely had an artist with the photography and telling an artist's story through it. But also when it comes to the readers, and what you want to create and grow out of that brand is also really important. And I know that you've had your your sights set on, as you mentioned, like a music festival, and you know, we all know that subscription services are sort of a, a really great way to bring fans in and to generate consistent revenue but also to sell them other types of experiences under this umbrella so how do you see cream expanding while not diluting itself but also growing to be this much bigger thing outside of just the magazine and and
8: you know maybe a website component you have to be a brand that people really identify with and want to champion i mean there's a reason that no one would be caught dead wearing a Pitchfork T-shirt, you know? <laughs> but, we, <laughs> we, but we sell a lot Aww. of Dream and Boy Howdy T-shirts. It's cool. Sure. Um, you know, yeah. and I say that as someone who reads Pitchfork daily, you know? Um, well, I know. And, you know, it's a, it's sort of the alchemy of, of brand building. Um I, I, I think it's, you don't want to make, mistakes, right? You want to, and, and part of that is if you can do less, right, you putting less out there into the world, everything that you put out needs to be better, right? So you really, uh, you really are a, you're, you're creating a brand, a really specific brand vision that whenever you're saying something into the digital space, you know, it can go really far. So it has to be on brand. You know, I, we look at it mm-hmm. a lot like, you know, I like what websites were doing in the early 2000s when I started. Advice: uh, the website was updated once a month, and that content was the magazine, and mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. a pure distillation of the brand voice. And you know, we looked at right. that with team, and we said, "Look, we're not trying to. We're, we don't consider ourselves a media company. We're an entertainment company, and we're a brand. Mm-hmm. And let's have the purest distillation of our brand." come out uh we can you know put the articles online for our subscribers but we don't need to be doing 50 articles a day because all that does is dilute you and make you just like everyone else if everyone is writing uh the article about you know the viagra boys uh uh tour dates well what makes it so special for you guys you know it's like nothing Mm -hmm. it's like Cream wants to write the article that no one else is writing, uh, and you know, do new photography, not just use like the PR images. Um, so, and and luckily, right, right. You know, we have a huge archive from the the seventies and eighties that we can we can pull from whenever we need to. So, yeah, we do have an a good archive. It's it's a really good archive, and it's funny because we've seen, uh, like the number of page views that people are are doing online, it's like something like nine or 10 is the average page views on our site, which is purely people flipping through the archive. Um, and that's very, uh, and, and, you know, we're not a digital media company. We don't take advertising on the site. You know, it's just like, that's not a game that I really want to play because we're never going to win. We're not, you know, it's like, you don't Mm. launch, you don't launch your own website to be an ad supported, uh, uh, brand right now, it's just not. It's not in the cards. You know, you're not going to be better at targeting a demographic than Facebook, right? A lot of brands do not spend their money directly mm-hmm. with publishers anymore. You know, they know they can buy your sites. Uh, you know, uh, you know, on the like an auction service, um, or they can just target your audience via via Facebook or you know Meta or whatever, and. So we said, screw it. Like, let's not worry about the number of uh, the number of of viewers on our users on our website. Let's worry about selling subscriptions, bringing people in to our world, and then, you know, showing them that we are the best rock and roll experience. And that means, yeah, you sell them a subscription. Hopefully they'll like a T-shirt that we make someday when we have a when we have a, you know, maybe they'll buy a ticket to that. Let's get them, um, you know, into – let's do a podcast. Let's do a a show that they're going to watch. We should be the place that they go for rock and roll content.
1: I love it. I love it. So I know that's a bit of what the future looks like. But personally, next few years for Cream,
8: what would you like to see out in the world? So we are going to start doing events this year uh, or rather in 2023. Mm events. Uh, you might even see them in, in your city. Uh, oh my so, God. Well, if you come to LA, you just yep. let me know. Uh, well, you'll, you'll get an invite. And uh, so we're going to do some of it. We're going to do some smaller events that will ladder up into something bigger uh, down the line. You'll see the magazine obviously continue publishing. Um, you'll see some new uh, video franchises uh, premiering on our various social media channels. Um, and Maybe some audio projects that are that are coming down. So uh, it's going to be an exciting year, and um, you know we're just really excited to be telling the rock and roll story. And I think that's that's why everyone comes to work uh, every day. Is you know it's fun working in the rock and roll world. I love it. Well,
1: John, thank you for spending the morning with us. We appreciate it. If people want to check out the magazine, where can they go? Where can they follow along? Where can they be a part of the community?
8: Uh, To check out the magazine, you can go to cream.com or follow us on socials at Cream Mag.
1: Sweet. Well, John, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to checking out your events when you come to town. Thanks, Darren.
3: We talk about food.